available in more homes than the Pac-12 Network. We are the Podcast of Champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online. And here he goes, Miles Jack! And I'm Ryan Abraham from USCFootball.com. Liner, going to try to sneak it ahead. Touchdown, SC! We are the Podcast of Champions. Welcome, everyone, back to the Podcast of Champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 247 Sports Network, or the 247 Sports Network, or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, and I'm Ryan Abraham from uscfootball.com, the USC site on that aforementioned 247 Sports Network, or whatever you want to call it. And we, together, make the Podcast of Champions. I think about three years in now, talking Pac-12 football. Can you believe, Dave, we're still rolling at this point? It's incredible. It's incredible. We we came up with this watching Mike Juarez um, just running around at uh, Redondo Union High School, and he's now going to be a UCLA junior this coming year. Wow. So that's, uh, that's time. That's time passing in a real way. He actually got a real play, too, in the, uh, was it the last game of the season? He had, like, the fake punt run Oh, yeah. Yeah, he ran. He ran. Nice. Yeah, and I saw some saw some photos of him. He's getting back into playing shape. Things are looking good for Mike. So nice. Well, we can thank Mike for this little show we've been doing here, and we do appreciate all the feedback that you guys have given us. This uh, we're in the middle of a in depth series. We're going, uh, getting talking about the infrastructures of all the different schools. We are through uh, eight of the twelve Pac twelve schools, and we're going to do the Bay Area schools today. If you have any questions or comments, we do love to hear from you. Pac12podcast at gmail.com is the email address. Or if you want to tweet us, at Pac12podcast. Find all of our old episodes on Pac12podcast.com. And if you want to leave a voicemail, you can do that too. 641-715-3900. Dial that in on your phone. You, those phones, you can call numbers with them too, you know, just you millennials <laughs> out there. Oh, yeah. And oh, you, yeah. And the extension is 734-972. So we'd love to get a voicemail. We haven't got one in a while, Dave. No, we haven't gotten one in a while. But you did ask at the beginning there if I had any questions. Oh, you have a question? Okay. Are you ready? Yeah. Are you hiring? Posting your position to job sites and waiting and waiting for the right people to see it? ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way. So they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes tr- trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash POC. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash POC. ZipRecruiter.com slash POC. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I love that our it, the uh, the promo code is POC, Podcasts of Champions. That's great. So, yeah, if you need you need to hire anyone, please uh, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash POC. Help us out a little bit. Help out our sponsor a little bit. We do appreciate them being a sponsor. So, 
Dave, that was good. I thought we did a pretty good job there. I, I thought we were. I thought we were much more natural this time than we were last time. Like I, I tried to lead into it organically. Yeah. How, uh, sound off. You know, we want <laughs> we want to hear from you how you felt that ad read went. Yeah. All right. We actually we're one of our, our email questions we're going to talk we're going to uh, get into later. They mentioned it, so we'll uh, we'll talk about that I guess later on in the show. Um, but the first part of the show, Dave. So we were going to talk. Bay Area schools today, up in the Bay, uh, Cal Bears, Stanford Cardinal, our buddies Ryan Gorsi and RJ Abadia, they're going to talk all about Stanford and Cal. Are you excited to talk some Bay Area stuff? I'm excited to hear why Cal hasn't gone 11-1 and recently. I want to hear <laughs> about that. Um, yeah, no, I love hearing about the Bay Area schools. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, this is going to be the penultimate show in this format, uh, we still got the Washington schools to get to, but this is the second to last one. So I'm, uh, I'm pumped up. I think we've really had a nice rhythm. We got a lot of good feedback about the Oregon show last week. So I'm excited about this one. Yeah. Penultimate's always a weird, it just seems like it's, you're using a big word for the sake of using a big did, word. It's like, did, did you, did you like what I did there where I used it once and, and then, then you... because I wasn't quite sure if you knew what it meant, <laughs> I then defined it essentially when i said it again yeah i know that when people like in the sports world use that all the time and i'm like that just seems like i don't know it's it's just like a superfluous use of a a large word you just dropped a superfluous okay well there we go um look at you look at you big spender (laughs) oh fun stuff yeah i don't know when that started like there's Certain, you know, I mean, as, as sports writers and people in the in the journalism world, we start to like reuse things. You hear one and you're like, oh, that works. And, you know, at some point, every like cliche just started off. Someone just made it up one time. You know, it could whatever it is. Like, uh, that's a long bomb. Like, you know, like someone said that first, and then just like, oh, that's good. It just everyone uses it all the time for home runs now in baseball. You know, it's one of those things. And that's one I think that we've we've I've started to hear more recently. And I think one person heard it and then said, oh, I'll start using that too. My favorite is not necessarily like the single phrases, but like the the like full syntax and structure of the way you talk about things. Like you'll never see anybody use the second person as much as a sports writer saying <laughs> you've got to like blah or like um, or when you're describing a recruit. This is one I think I picked up from like I think it's probably like Biggins or somebody where it's like he's got a lot of blank to him. Like he's got a lot of length to him it's like you don't want to describe a guy as long. And so you're like, he's got a lot of length to him. He's got a lot of, a lot of size to him because you're like, I don't want to say he's big. Cause then they're going to think it's like a commentary on something else besides his like overall size. And it's just, it, it's, it's wild. The different, different ways that you, you see people write in sports as opposed to other industries. It would, uh, that would be a great class like to have, like for like oh, someone man. studying that, like someone could write a textbook on all the, cliches and all the different phrases all, all of that kind of stuff i think that'd be kind of fun I, I like i occasionally have to edit things that aren't sports and it's like it's a whole different language like the, <laughs> the way people write about sports versus the way they write about anything else in life is like a whole different thing and it's fun and great and and i wouldn't trade it for anything all right dave well we want to start this off we're going to talk a little bit of stanford cardinal Football with our buddy, our pal, RJ Abadia. You can follow him on Twitter at RJ underscore A-B-E-Y-T-I-A. Does a great job covering the Stanford Cardinal for the bootleg.com. RJ, thanks for coming on, man. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I, I miss the sound effects. I'm not going to lie. That that warms my heart. <laughs> 
Well, you wouldn't have to miss it. You should just listen every single week, and then you'll be good to go. And then you'll hear, you know, Stanford during the season, and then, you know, occasionally in the off season. It's great. Wow, that's a nice that's a nice upsell, Dave. I think you've got me. <laughs> I think I, I think I've nailed it. Um, so do they have you playing quarterback out there yet? I mean, what's what's the story with Stanford and quarterback situation? We want to know. Everybody wants to know. Um, it's an unbelievable story. Um, there are literally no eligible scholarship quarterbacks for spring ball for Stanford, which I just have to believe. I mean, forgive me for not doing the research, but that's got to be an FBS precedent. Um, I cannot think of any time, certainly within the Pac-12, where a school did not have a scholarship athlete. Um, KJ Costello uh, had a hip injury it's not totally clear whether it was something that developed as the season went on uh david shaw said it was something that was kind of nagging him but there was no indication after he played in the alamo bowl that he would need a surgery or that he was in a, an, an injury situation like that uh davis mills had what coach shaw calls a setback um during notre dame week which stanford which was stanford's final week of the regular season um, so indications are that he has re-injured in some manner um, the same the same knee injury that cost him um, last season. So you take that into the account. You have Keller Chris transferring, um, Ryan Burns being a fifth-year senior, and no quarterback recruited in the 2015 class. And it is all about walk-on slinging Jack Richardson for the Cardinal this spring. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been, uh, it's been a slice. Yeah, that was, that was a funny, not funny, but just like, I think it was Kyle Bornegora who I first saw tweet that like, Oh, by the way, Stanford has no scholarship quarterbacks available for spring ball. Like, okay. Uh, should make spring game interesting, I guess, with, with no quarterbacks. Yeah, well, I mean, you guys, you know, you guys have played in the street, pick up football. Somebody, there's, there's all-time quarterback, right? Like, I think that's basically, I think that's basically what Stanford is shooting for. They have had Ryan Burns back, um, generously to just kind of throw some practice routes and and do things like that. He's he's been willing to come and do that, so that's kind of been helpful. Um, Tavita Pritchard, who is obviously a Stanford quarterback name with which you're both familiar. Uh, is the offensive coordinator, but he's still uh, he's still got a little left in the old uh, in the old right arm. So he's <laughs> he's participating. He's participating as well. Um, I guess they're gonna roll in some some visitors. There may be not to not to traumatize Dave at all, but there may be a Kevin no. Hogan sighting at some Don't point. Don't say it. <laughs> I've checked. He he can't hurt you anymore, Dave. I promise. <laughs> He's already hurt me too much, too much. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, no, I mean, and you know, it's it is what it is, which doesn't say much. But it, it's just one of those things where, you know, in the moment, the coaches are like, "Well, this isn't really a big deal," and everyone else is just kind of like, "Well, I guess." But like, <laughs> wouldn't it be nice to have? Wouldn't it be nice to have four weeks with your top two quarterbacks, you know, throwing yeah. the ball? And, uh, you know, I guess Stanford's going to be leaning very heavily on its uh, virtual reality 
that they've got. Yeah. Um, that was I a wise Davis investment. Mills and KJ. Yeah. Davis Mills and Costello are going to be strapped up to their matrix chairs for the next, <laughs> the next two weeks. And uh, we'll just see how that works. I mean, it worked for Keanu. So, you know. Yeah. It'll fulfill uh, David Shaw's dream of eventually just running an entire season out of the wildcat. I think that's probably the manifest destiny there. Um, well, all right. We should probably... no, no, the, the funniest. No, I'll just give you one last thing. The funniest, the funniest snark tweet I saw, or I think it might've been a comment in a board, but it just said that David Shaw's commitment to blocking has now reached its peak manifestation. <laughs> like that is literally all that's going to be happening at Stanford practice for the next four weeks. It's going to be a whole new thing. You'll play 11 offensive linemen and you'll just kind of mix and match who gets the ball, but it's just pure running <laughs> all 300 pounders. That's it. I like it. Hey, put Bryce Love like, back there yeah. and let him do some. Yeah. Why not? I mean, but he doesn't really fit the ethos there. Yeah, okay. Um, all right. We've got a lot to discuss. Um, yes. Stanford, you know, one of the best programs in the PAC 12 over the last decade or so and we are doing our deep dive series so to recap for everybody out there who you know maybe is jumping in just for this episode um this is a series of shows we're doing thanks to listener hithliday almond who gave us a series of great questions um about the infrastructure of each program in the pac-12 the structural factors not necessarily you know what's currently going on but what kind of systems are put in place um for the long term and, you know, what the uh, what the actual guts of the program looks like. So we have three different questions um, kind of touching on resources, recruiting and politics. So let's just jump right in with resources. Um, so, RJ, um, yeah, does does Stanford have the money to meet its program goals? Are its facilities adequate and modern? And does it have the financial ability to make a sudden high quality coaching change if it wants? Well, I know that your your listeners are quite savvy, and so I'm sure they can probably predict that the answer to any question that involves does Stanford have the money um, is going to be yes. So, you know, short you know short answer is yes. It certainly has the money to meet its program goals. The more complicated issue, which I I, I not to not to tease it, but I guess we're going to be getting to later in in, in this in this series of inquiry. Um, but the bigger question is how committed is it to using that money? And that that's a many layered response. But uh, just to get to your to to the top questions, yes, Stanford certainly has all the money it needs to do pretty much whatever it wants in terms of the level of competition. I mean. That's that's certainly not an issue. Um, facilities adequate and modern. I have, I think now been to all of the Pac-12 football facilities at this point, and I can say Stanford's is certainly competitive with all of them. I mean, obviously, any of the ones that have been built in the last three to five years have the advantage of being built in the last three to five years. But I don't think Stanford's getting outclassed in any way by its facility. The the football, the extension, the, the extension to the athletic department that is essentially the football building is just as nice as any of the others that I've seen. The practice facilities are fine. Um, they splurged 
and have actual full-length football fields as opposed to some others in the Pac-12. Um, Shade. And I, I'm sorry. I just It's just weird <laughs> for me to look at that. I just can't. Every time I go there, I'm just like, I see the 40, and then the next thing I see is the 20, and I'm just like, wait, what? Anyway, um, yeah, no, it, it, it does. M- money, money is not a problem. Uh, for Stanford, certainly not in the in the regard that we're talking about. I think kind of the most interesting question is the last one. Does it have the financial ability to make a sudden high quality coaching change if it wants? Um, yeah, it has the it has the financial ability. But among the things that would stop among the numerous things that would stop Stanford from ever doing that, um, money is certainly not one of them. The uh, facility-wise, I mean, yeah, I think obviously Stanford hasn't needed to do that when you're talking about Harbaugh and to David Shaw, certainly high-quality coaches. Now, if Shaw moves on or something happens, I think that's when you would see, you know, unless there's someone on staff, they would have to try to replace or whatever. But um, for the most part, that hasn't really been a problem for Stanford, you know, in the last decade just because they've had a lot of continuity there. On the facility side, I really love what they did with the Stanford Stadium. I mean, it's not – you don't need a 80,000 seat stadium there. It's, it's more intimate. It's no. nice. I mean, I, it seems like that's something that's, that was a, a great plan from the beginning and resonated well. And, you know, a, a wise use of the, the budget that they had. No, absolutely. What they did with Stanford stadium was exactly like you said, it was exactly what they needed to do with Stanford stadium. It's a great venue. It's a great place to watch a game. Um, it's, it's, it's nice. It's got everything that you would need as far as the facility goes. Um, recruits like it. I mean, it's, it's, they, they did the job there. They nailed that. They nailed that as they should have. And, you know, as far as everything else goes, you know, it's, it's Stanford. I mean, they recruit, they recruit very much to the campus. So it's very important what the recruits actually see there. And, you know, that as a campus as a whole, it's pretty much, it's pretty competitive with just about any other. So my impression of the financial backing for Stanford is obviously they've got a lot of wealthy and influential people who went to Stanford and the Silicon Valley area and so on and so forth, but that it's been relatively passive money. Like when you look at Phil Knight and what, and I know he does some stuff for Stanford as well, but when you look at what he did for what he's done for Oregon and, you know, it's the kind of thing from everything we've heard that, you know, Oregon football asks for something and Phil Knight has it the next day, essentially. Um, and that kind of active role, you know, like a T. Boone Pickens at Oklahoma State or, you know, some of these bigger, more influential boosters. Where would you put Stanford's money on that spectrum? Is it, you know, more towards the, oh, you know, we'll donate our, you know, million dollars a year or whatever and we don't really care where it goes? Or is it, you know, kind of active in that Phil Knight, T. Boone Pickens kind of way? Well, I don't it, – it's interesting because there is – you know, a name that I think most people are familiar with by now, um, John Ariaga, whose name is on the right. on the football, on the athletic building and a number of other buildings on campus. He literally designed every single aspect or at least approved every single aspect of the football stadium. Um, he, I mean, he is that guy for Stanford. So he's there. What's, what's interesting is it. You get it's a very funny situation with Stanford because, again, you're you're phrasing the question in terms of are there people willing to give 
do they have that option if they need it? And the answer is yes. But the more intriguing thing is that they don't often ask in the way that you'd think they would. Um, you know, one of the big issues in the last decade was the notion of paying quality money for assistance because, you know, where Stanford is located on the peninsula, your money does not go as far as it does in Corvallis or Eugene, to speak to the, to the example you used. You know, and housing is an issue as well. And Stanford's done a lot to, to actually build housing to provide for the assistant coaches who, you know, with the salaries they make would be more than comfortable in most of the other Pac-12 outposts. But up here where they are particularly, you know, their money doesn't go as far, you know. So, again, the, the money is there. It's, it's a question of, you know, how hard does Stanford push and how much do they really try to, to tap those resources. And I, I would say they are a little more reserved than, than most of the other schools against whom they are competing in asking for money. Dave, did you have one more follow-up or should we jump to recruiting? Well, let's jump to recruiting. Okay. Uh, RJ, does Stanford have the first pick of the best recruits in its area? And how valuable is that pool? And how is the school thought of by national recruits? Well, um, I would say Stanford certainly on the whole or in most cases, excuse me, has the first pick of the best recruits who can get in. Um, I don't think there's much question about that. And to be honest with you, that's more or less the way it is nationally. I mean, I would say there are, there are, there are a few regions where it's just not quite that cut and dry. Um, Southern California being one, but aside from, aside from that, um, Stanford, Stanford's area, Stanford doesn't usually get too much from the Bay area. They've got some guys on the roster now and they're recruiting some guys for some pretty good players, um, in the immediate area. Um, but it's not, it's not the pipeline for, for what has made Stanford as good as it's been. I would say, if you're looking at the areas where Stanford has built a legitimate pipeline that has provided the success that they have, it's, it's Southern California, Texas, um, and Georgia, um, among others. But, of course, they, they recruit pretty nationally. So as far as the value of the pool, I mean, it's great to, to have players in the immediate area, but the academic requirement that Stanford kind of mute that to a certain extent to a certain extent, you know, it's not like at USC or even UCLA to a, to a certain extent where you have a really rich, fertile recruiting area and there's almost always uh, a preset bias towards one of those two schools. Um, it's, it's, it's something that's good to have as far as the national recruits. I mean, it's, that's how they do it. There's no other way for Stanford to, to be successful than to recruit nationally. So I would say national recruits um, hold Stanford in very, very high esteem. Stanford's recruiting strategy, obviously, it's different in so many different ways, but I'm interested in kind of the way like a single recruitment happens. Is it much more common for Stanford to have, you know, recruits identify them as an option than vice versa? Because it seems like it's such a self-selector in terms of the academic requirements that you need to get into Stanford, that 
it's almost not worth it to do like the typical recruiting strategy of like, you know, going to X high schools all over the place and just looking at guys. Cause I imagine for a lot of situations, Stanford just can't get those guys in. So does it end up being a lot more kind of recruit? Um, maybe I'm phrasing this badly, but where they have to initiate maybe first contact a little bit more than other schools. Um, maybe a little bit more. I think Stanford is still Stanford's proactive about initiating contacts, um, at least first contacts, or at least establishing some kind of contact. So I, I would say the difference is is that by the time that happens, Stanford has already looked into a recruit's transcripts and academic profile because there's really no point in building a relationship if you know right away that the player, that, that the, the student athlete doesn't have the profile for a competitive application, you know? So it's, it's, I don't think it's the process is reversed that much. I think it's still Stanford doing, you know, most of the initiating and most of the courting, but, um, but there is a lot of that. You do hear a lot of, you know, you do have a lot of stories. What, what happens a lot is that you hear about Stanford and the phrase dream school gets thrown around quite a bit. And what that tends to, how that tends to play out in recruiting is that Stanford tends to wait a lot longer to offer. Um, sometimes it's a little longer, sometimes it's a lot, but they don't typically rush to offer. They, they might start a relationship with a kid. They'll, they'll, you know, they might know a kid and be in on a kid and be in discussions with him. Um, but I can, I can think of a number of recruits right now, even ones in Southern California who, you know, were longtime Stanford recruits, but they weren't necessarily longtime offers. The offer comes a little later in the process for Stanford. And there are, there are pros and cons to that strategy without question. Numbers wise, RJ, um, I kind of had to figure out a lot, a lot more of the recruiting rules and all the scholarship numbers as far as initial counters and overall counters. When USC was going through the the sanctions, you kind of like become hypersensitive right. to that. There's sometimes you know big classes, sometimes small classes. Um, you know, USC's fairly back to normal now, but they had a smaller class, 18 people. It seems like every year Stanford has like a smaller class. Is there have there been some bigger ones and is that just kind of the strategy? And what, like, are they far under that 85 scholarship limit if they're constantly only signing guys in the teens as opposed to in the 20s? Well, it, it, it comes in cycles and it tends to come in two year cycles. Um, Stanford 17 class and their 18 class um, were both in the teens. And that was both, um, both of those were anticipated to play out like that. Um, the seventh, the 16 and the 15 classes were bigger classes. I think a lot more typical of what you'd expect from a, from a PAC 12 school. Um, so it's not, you know, it's never going to be like a 25, 25, 20, you know, they're, they're never going to quite do that. It's, they try to plan it out as much as they can. Um, so I would expect, for instance, the 19 class should be comfortably above 20 guys that they sign. Um, for the reasons that you said, I mean, you have, you have the number and there's no reason not to have that many guys. The, the, the thing that David Shaw has talked about is getting away from the, the need to just fill the numbers and take guys 
who maybe are not top tier guys. In other words, you know, Stanford, there are academically qualified kids that Stanford can literally call at 11.58 p.m. before National Signing Day with an offer, and they could probably get the kid to commit. But that are, that's not necessarily going to be the kind of player who has helped Stanford be as good as they've been. So they they try very hard to divorce themselves from the numbers. I mean, obviously, they need to meet a certain amount at each position, but it, it's cyclical. I think it's more cyclical at Stanford in terms of the pure numbers than it is at other schools. So we know who um, Stanford's often recruiting against locally. It's, you know, USC, Washington, UCLA, like out West. But when, when you're looking nationally, I mean, who does, I guess, what other national programs can credibly offer like something similar to what Stanford is? And do those ones, like, I guess Notre Dame would be an example that a school that recruits nationally and can offer also offer like a somewhat uh, prestigious academic um, environment. Like, does Stanford run up against any one particular program nationally that they're often competing against uh, for guys? I mean, you have to really stretch that word credibly to, to counter right. it, but I think you named it. I think if, if you're asking me nationally who is a top program who tends to have the biggest overlap with Stanford in terms of recruit targets, I think there's no question it's Notre Dame. Um, and, you know, it's happening right now in the 19 recruiting class as we speak, um, and it's been happening for, for, you know, for a good number of years. Um, and I think, I think there's clearly a distinction on the part of most recruits. And again, Notre Dame does not, does not have the same application process that Stanford does. Um, so, yeah, as far as the biggest overlap, I'd say Notre Dame. And then, you know, it's, it's just a case-by-case basis. I mean, Stanford has, has gotten guys, gotten a good number of guys to come out of Georgia. And those guys are all hit up by the same SEC schools that you would expect them to be to be recruited by. You know, as far as Texas goes, they've, they've gone up against those kind of schools as well. It's just kind of a recruit-by-recruit basis. I think, you know, Notre Dame, Notre Dame as a brand, you know, obviously they do like to play up the academics, but, you know, there's only so far they can play those up when they're recruiting against Stanford. So it's kind of a different, it's kind of a unique, a unique dynamic between those two. Cause I don't think Notre Dame recruits against Stanford the same, the same way that they recruit against other schools. Right. Should we move on to politics, Dave? Yeah. All right. So this is uh, kind of the, what we are, touching on, I think, a little bit in the resources section, at least your answers were, but um, let's get into the question part of this. Uh, So this is the politics section. Does the football program have the necessary institutional support and competence from the school administration? How do you describe the factional divisions among the fan base, boosters, and insiders? So I think the perception for a long time at Stanford has been that football has become something that is pretty significant to the status and to the perception of the university. Um, I think there's absolutely a ceiling on the extent to which um, many at the university um, 
want that to be Stanford's ID. You know, like if you if you talk about, you know, a pie or a pie graph and what is the slice of that 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 people want to be Stanford football, I think that's probably the smallest pie slice in the Pac twelve. Um, there's there's definitely there's definitely a sense that while football is definitely valued, there are those with there 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 are those at Stanford who don't want to be seen as reaching for it in the same way that you know USC reaches for it or Notre Dame reaches for it or Alabama reaches for it, and that that's that's both philosophically and and in practice. I mean, if you look at USC's staff. There are at least, I think, five guy, five positions that involve the word recruiting and director and athletic director or associate or something. Alabama's got seven people who are either senior athletic director, recruiting director, recruiting coordinator. They've got seven guys. Stanford's got one. And they've basically got a staff of four other people with that one who are really dedicated to recruiting. You know, you guys know, I mean, I'm sure you all saw the the famous, I think it was George Schroeder who tweeted out, Alabama's got like 97 right. interns slash grad assistant grunts, whatever, working in the boiler room to, you know, produce all these names and blah, blah, blah. Um, so it, again, it comes down to, can Stanford afford a staff like, Alabama or even like USC, yeah, there's no question they can afford it. Do they want it? I don't think so. I really don't. I think that, you know, there is there is a gap between what Stanford is willing to do and what other schools are willing to do in terms of financially, in terms of, you know, having a having an athletic department where the football staff is so disproportionately funded or, and, and, you know, staff, I think the, the look alone is something that can, that throws off a certain segment. Now, that being said, um, there's no question that football's rise has been a huge, huge boon to the university. It's not an accident that Stanford is now the most applied school the most applied to school in the country. It's not an accident that it's it's harder to get into Stanford now than it is to get into Harvard, which wasn't always the case. Um, hasn't been the case until I'd say the last three or four years. You know, if you're when you're talking about the students in general, I mean, the way Stanford distinguishes itself from the Ivy League is that you can come to Stanford and receive an education that is right on par with those schools, and you can root for a ranked football team. You know, you can go to the Rose Bowl. You can you can do things like that. And I think there is definitely an appreciation for it, for what football's done in that regard. But is Stanford ever going to go all in as a as a football school? Um, I I tend to doubt it at this point. RJ, you talked about you know the you know especially over the last decade the rise of Stanford football with Harbaugh and David Shaw. You know, really impressive runs that the, this team has made. Um, and it seems like the school, you know, to w- whatever limited extent supports it. What do you feel about the fan base? Because, you know, been going to Stanford games for a long time 
And even when they were terrible, it seemed like there was this kind of core group of people that would go, and there was people that just didn't seem to care about it. Has it, 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 it seems like it hasn't even changed that much when the team is really good or if they're bad. It's just like there's certain people that aren't going to be, I'm not a football fan, I'm not going to go. Um, is, have you seen it change much as far as the fan base goes, you know, from then to the, you know, the last 10 years? You know, it's really hard to tell. I mean, you go to the game, you're, you're up here every other year, both of you guys, you know, I've been up here plenty of times. Um, and it, it's not a situation where Stanford has galvanized the alumni in a way that, that manifests itself in football sales. Now, part of that is because Stanford is very different from a number of other Pac-12 schools, especially USC and UCLA, when you talk about the percentage of graduates that stay in the area. That number, that number is much lower than um than most other schools um and then the other part of it is there's just not a lot of stanford graduates i mean there the the amount of graduates on the planet i think is still below 300,000 that's for the whole earth you know i think there are probably 300,000 usc alums living within 15 minutes of usc so you know i think part of it is the is the is the difference there and, you know, part of it is just the difference of, of how football is looked at. The, the, the weird thing is that Stanford home games don't, you know, they're not blanket sellouts. And yet the bowl games tend to do phenomenally well. Like Stanford, Stanford went well over its Orange Bowl allotment. It's gone over its, all of its Rose Bowl allotments, um, the Fiesta Bowl. Um, I, I mean, they drew, they drew people to the Sun Bowl. Obviously, it wasn't the same, the same exact situation, but Stanford, Stanford was represented um, in San Antonio this year at the Alamo Bowl. So, yeah, I, I just, you know, it's, it's made a difference, I think, on campus. I think it's created a bigger sense of community. But, again, I just think there's, there's, not, there's not ever going to be a time where it just, where Stanford football just envelops the community. Um, we'll see. I mean, if, if they're able to, if they're able to push past that final tier and, and get themselves to a college football playoff, um, that might help. That might change things. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the fan base is, is pretty much what, what you see. I mean, it's a dedicated, smaller core group of fans Um that supports the scene. All right. I've got like a 10 part question here. So I'm going to, I'm going to start. So, okay. So Stanford obviously has the institutional framework to do really, really well. Cause they've been doing really, really well for the last nine years or whatever. But I mean, you don't have to go back that far to see Walt Harris going one and 11, buddy Tevens doing whatever no. it was he was doing for three years. Tyrone Willingham being fine, but not being great. Bill Walsh in his second stint, not doing a great job. Uh, Denny yeah. Green, you know, going under 500. So what, so I guess few part question, but what changed? Was it simply the galvanizing force of Jim Harbaugh or was there something institutionally that changed? And then two, if David Shaw goes one and 11 and say there's enough of a move to like fire him next year, will, will Stanford go right back to being, you know, more like that Willingham program say, 
or is is the sustainable framework in place now? So I think Harbaugh, as you, as you get further and further away, I think what you look at with Jim Harbaugh is he really was for, well, maybe not lack of a better term, but I'm just going to use it anyway. You know, he was, he was the big bang for Stanford football. And what, what he did, what he did, there was a couple things that he did. First of all, he brought an attitude to running a football program that was so far out of the normal Stanford persona or Stanford's attitude about running literally anything. It was such a departure um, that it, it, it changed, it, it changed everything. And it, it did a couple things. First of all, you know, it did kick some institutional changes and supports into place. I mean, again, when I, when I, when I say Stanford is limited in terms of how much it wants to succeed, I'm talking about is Stanford doing what Alabama does to succeed. Right. You know, not like is Stanford doing what Oregon state does to succeed or, you know what I mean? Like it's not, it's not like Stanford's not trying at this point. And, and the big part of that is Jim Harbaugh. Jim Harbaugh set, he set precedents for the effort that was going to go into recruiting for the support that was going to be required from, from the institution itself. And he got that support and he turned it into results that were tangible and that were having an effect on the university. And, you know, it's, it's everyone talks about it. Anyone who made the trip, to Florida for the Orange Bowl, one of the things everyone talks about is how um, the president of the university, um, John Hennessy, and I think the provost at the time, John Etchemendy, were just walking around in this utter state of bliss at like, oh my God, this is what it's like when you have a when you have a top football team. This is what you get to do. This is what the experience is like. And I mean. It was just they had smiles on their faces for like the whole 96 hours that they were there or whatever time they were there. And everyone kind of got the understanding that it was like, okay, there is a value to investing in football. And that's what Jim Harbaugh did. And the other thing he did is that on the field, you know, we kind of joked about it earlier, but on the field, he established an identity that Stanford could sustainably and consistently recruit to, right? That physical Smash mouth run game. Everyone knows what Stanford's going to do. Everyone knows how Stanford's going to try to beat you. And, and that is a style that Stanford can recruit to. You know, if, if, they had, if they had found a couple years success winning with the way that Oregon wins, I don't know that they can do that every year. I don't know that they can find those kind of players and those kind of guys every single year. But when you talk about quarterback like a pro style quarterback an offensive line and the tight end position just to name three those are positions that Stanford can recruit at an elite level every single year and so there is a sustainability that Harbaugh built and that that David Shaw has absolutely built upon and and that that is what gives me the most faith I mean Stanford's not Stanford's Stanford's not going to just fall off the map within the course of a year. And the reason that I don't think that's going to happen is what I just said. They know now, they know how to win and they know how that informs recruiting. 
They know how that informs the process. Um, they know what they need from the institution. Now, your question about David Shaw going one and eleven—it's—it's it's interesting because let me let me put it like this: it, if he goes one and eleven this year, it will not go unnoticed. But there's also no chance that his 2019 would be considered a hot seat year in the way that it would at literally any other school. Right. Um, first of all, again, it's, it's not just the reality, which is that David Shaw is the most successful football coach in the history of the program, and it's really not close. Um, there have been, I think, I want to say nine. I think there have been nine 10-win-plus seasons in the 120-something-year history of the program, and David Shaw has been the coach for five of them. Um, so given that, there's no way, but aside from then, you know, we've talked over and over again, I keep coming back to, you know, the look, right. Or being seen as a football crazy school, just the act of making a snap judgment on a coach in a single season is not something Stanford's ever going to do barring, you know, obviously if something utterly unforgivable, illegal, scandalous were to happen, but I mean, if you know David Shaw and you know the way the program operates, that's highly unlikely to say the least. So, you know, again, could they make a change? Could they decide they want to go out and get guy super candidate X and pay him all these dollars? Yeah, they could. They're never going to. I don't believe. Hey, RJ, we got your buddy Ryan Gorsi kind of waiting to, to come on, but we did have a few Twitter questions. So do you mind doing a few uh Questions yeah, from the fans we'll do, real rap, quick. we'll do rapid fire. I'll 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 keep my S answers down to two to three paragraphs for you guys. Oh, okay, there we go. <laughs> so this is from uh at C H U N two S O, so Chun two S O. Why doesn't Shaw call passing plays to love? Great question. Um a question that we asked him over the course of this past season, and I don't think there's necessarily a great answer. I think the, the answer he gave is just that Stanford found itself in a place where there were a lot of pretty good pass-catching options this year. Um, I and a number of others would advocate that or argue that Bryce Love should have gotten more passes. Um, I think that's something that we may see coming into this year. Um, but it was, it was strange, especially because he was, used, he was used more in the passing game in his previous two seasons. So it's not like they haven't seen him succeed with the ball like that. I think a lot of it just comes down to, you know, they, they knew they were going to lean on him huge in the running game, and you got to kind of cut his workload somewhere. You know, you can't – if you're going to take 20 to 25 home run shots with him running the ball, you know, I think they're a little leery of adding another five passes to him or something like that, you know. So, yeah, I, that's, that's a great question, and uh, that's about as good an answer as I can give. All right, this is from uh, Shikar Gupta 94 uh, on Twitter. Uh, what are realistic expectations for Stanford considering they return KJ Costello and Bryce Love, lose a lot of their best linemen, but can plug in some of the nation's top recruits from the 2017 class? Um, offensively, it is realistic to expect this team to be elite. Um, there's even, even with the, the quarterback spring situation right now, there's no question. Um, Four of the five starters are coming back. There are depth guys, and as as um, 
as the tweeter alluded, there are recruits like Foster Sorrell ready to step up um, and fill the void on the offensive line. Um, Stanford's got tight end options. They've got wide receiver options and experience coming back. They've got Bryce Love coming back. So offensively, um, reasonable to expect them to be elite. There's really no excuse, barring injury, for them to be anything less than that. Defensively, they are going to have major problems. Um, this is this is on paper the thinnest defensive front seven that they've had in this whole era, um, and that's that's kind of the 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 final consequence of a, of a couple recruiting cycles that didn't quite go the way they needed it to go. Um, it's certainly something that they're addressing in recruiting right now, but you know when you talk about those good those those really good Stanford teams of the, you know, the 2012, 2013 variety where they had the elite defense, the horses are just not there at this point. Um, so I would say, you know, offense can carry you a long way in college football. So if you want a wins number, I would say, I would say anywhere between eight and 11 if everything goes right but i i don't think the defense i don't think the defense is going to win very many games for them this year we got one from at mr tpsm is stanford really going to increase in uh, enrollment to the point where normal people can attend there again wow uh (laughs) boy there's a lot there's a lot to pick apart with that tweet a lot to unpack a lot to unpack yeah, holy cow. First of all, like, can we just get a working definition for normal people? I don't, how many normal people are even on this podcast right now? Uh, uh, half. Half. But, yeah, right? 1.5. Um, yeah. Uh, I guess I'd have to say no. Um, I think – I think I don't think Stanford does anything against, quote, unquote, normal people, but I think the – the exclusivity and the competitiveness that it takes to, to get in to the school um, is a big part of what is what makes Stanford Stanford. So, yeah, no, I, I don't see that changing anytime soon. And certainly with the, with the way admissions is going these days, I'm certainly glad that uh, my time has come and gone because I honestly don't even know if my application would make it from the the post office to uh, an admissions officer's desk at this point. All right. This is from uh, DC Yao at 40. Um, he asks, uh, is the higher intelligence of Stanford players a factor in their success? What do they do differently to maximize that advantage? More complex playbooks, more complex formations? <sighs> well, I feel hard answering this question with you, Dave, because I know you have thoughts about this. I know you're probably gritting your teeth right now about the vast doc, the, the well-documented vast complexity of the Stanford playbook. Um, to most directly answer the question, yeah, I, I think there is, there is a certain advantage to what Stanford does in terms of the kind of players they get. They do have guys who are very, you know, they're very cerebral, they're very analytic. That, that's, the, that's the way they like to attack problems is by having as much information as possible. And, and they are asked to digest a good amount of, of information. Um, and I think, you know, as far as 
the way they leverage that on the field. I mean, I think you can see it to a certain extent, but you know, it's always this, there's, there's always this walking paradox, right? Because the two things you hear the most about Stanford are, well, it's this playbook. It's like, you know, it, it takes up a terabyte of, uh, of Ram space, but then at the same time, everybody watches and says, why is the only thing they do run the ball up the middle? So, you know, I, it, it, you know, it's, it's hard. It's kind of hard to, to reconcile those two things. But I, I think they strategically and I think the way they recruit, I think they do recruit to this idea that there is an intellectual side to the game. And it is a way that if you, you know, if you are if you play physically and you play football the way it has to be played, it can make the difference in, in wins and losses. So, yeah, I, I think they I think they play that up and they play to that. Yeah, because David Shaw is so smart. He said, you know what? I know K.J. Costello is good, but we don't need him against Oregon State, so let's not play him. And uh, that's just the brain power yeah. there. We get it, you know. I liked it. And you know what? <laughs> he did, Ryan, that he was... didn't need him. They won. <laughs> yeah, they won, 15-14. There you go. <laughs> you know, it's you know what? I'm actually happier as you guys saying this because I get in trouble for saying stuff like that. So it's, this is like – it's like I'm doing Inception on you two here. You literally, <laughs> your tone was like spot on there. I'm not even gonna touch that. You guys said it perfectly. Uh, okay, we'll try to get through these. At Merrick Jonathan, uh, he has three questions. His third one, I think we talked about already, but yeah, third one's gone. First yeah. one, quick. How does the prominence of Olympic sports impact Stanford football? And then I'll read the second one. Is there any trade-off such that Stanford basketball slash football can't be great at the same time? Uh, okay. Yeah, no, that's an interesting question. I, you know, I, I don't know that it informs too much um, the Olympic success. I do know that on recruiting visits, Stanford does often create opportunities to meet a lot of those Olympic athletes, and it certainly helps. I've talked to a number of recruits who are kind of blown away that, oh, look, it's Katie Ledecky, it's Simone Manuel. Um, you know, so they, I, I think, I think the Olympic sports and some of the other teams that have been really successful have always been willing to help out Stanford in that regard. I say that's probably the extent to which, you know, Stanford's Olympic success or Olympic sports success helps football, but it, it's, it's a presence. There's, there's definitely a community and they, they definitely help with recruiting. Um, as far as your, the football basketball, I think, I think we're about to find out because I expect the basketball team to be, back to where it was in the in the late 90s and early 2000s within the next two seasons so we'll see there there's no reason that both can't be successful concurrently just because it has pretty much never happened um i guess you know you had the the 99 team went to the 2000 rose bowl and basketball was still pretty good at that point um so yeah no there's no reason that both of them can't be good and in fact i expect both of them to be pretty good um in short order here all right, RJ Abadia does a great job at the bootleg. RJ, thanks so much, man. We kept—I thought it would be a half hour. It was almost closer to an hour. So, uh, thanks for coming on and sharing all your insights. No problem, guys. Anytime. Thanks, RJ. All right, that was Stanford. Now we're going to talk California Golden Bears. <laughs> Little football with Ryan Gorsey. He's the publisher of BearTerritory.net. Follow him on Twitter at RG Bear Territory. Ryan. Did you did you just give David Woods like have him smoke like twelve packs of cigarettes before he did that voiceover? Because that that sounds like you you have a condition. 
Like that, that's, that's not, that's not I, good. I, I only wish that had been me. I only <laughs> wish, but I think in the early days of this show, we actually had some random listener. And if you're still listening, you're not random. You're great. Yeah. Uh, who, who recorded those sound effects for us. No. Oh, hey, fantastic. Great production value. Better than, better than feeding you a dozen, a dozen packs of, uh, yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't want to choose some Marlboro Lights and then and then record that because that would have been. He was awesome. Like not... he he did our intro. He did like all the uh, all of the uh, sound effects for every school, and we've been using them ever since. So it was great. I wish I yeah. could remember his name to give him credit, but he he was awesome. All it would require is checking our email, and that would be difficult. No. <laughs> that's that's just that's just a bridge too far. I mean, you couldn't possibly do that. Why, why would you? I, I rarely do when somebody emails me in the present day. So why would I go back and search in the past? Word. I can attest to that. It's hard to get a hold of my partner on the show sometimes. So it's uh, <laughs> that's he's just in his own world. So we just try to. I'm just living in it. So I'm like on the fringe somewhere, and we'll we'll actually do a show. I'm I'm utterly shocked that we decided we were going to talk to two publishers a week for six weeks. And we're like five weeks in, and we're so far we're successful. The only thing that screw us up is the Washington school. So I, I, I'm surprised we made it this far. What if after you saying that, I just ghosted, and like you just had to record the rest of this podcast by yourself, and just you, you, just you and Ryan, Ryan and Ryan, we Ryan it, on yeah. Ryan. Well, well, listen, Ryan. Here's what I think. That's a good point, Ryan. I, I mean, I, I do that to myself all the time, but. You know, they call that crazy or they say it should be institutionalized, (laughs) you know, whatever. Let the haters hate. Haters gonna hate word. Well, Ryan, we appreciate you coming on and uh, we're doing our deep dive series. We're talking to all the schools. Like I said, we've been through every school except the Washington schools and now Cal because we just did. Stanford, uh, basically trying to find out about the infrastructure of all the schools. And it was our, our buddy Hithliday Almond who sent us a great question that Dave and I answered for both USC and UCLA. And we said, you know, we should do this for every school. And then he had sent in an email soon after that. Hey, you should do this for every school. So that's what we've been doing. And surprisingly, it's been working. And I think everyone has different, unique answers. We're really looking forward to uh, yours for this stuff. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to giving you guys some sort of clarity on just why Cal uh, cows itself all the time, sometimes sideways. <laughs> all right. Well, then let's uh, let's jump right in. Um, so this is three sections, resources, recruiting, and politics. We will start with resources. Ryan, uh, does Cal have the money to meet its program goals? Are its facilities adequate and modern? And does it have the financial ability to make a sudden high-quality coaching change if it wants well i'm going to kind of go in reverse here uh they have the coaching hire they want they got the guy they want they didn't have to spend a whole ton of money on him because he is a first-time head coach justin wilcox and the way that he's running the program right now i mean especially you look at the offseason where his alma mater oregon was suddenly itself in need of a new head coach they came calling and he said i don't even want to interview i mean hey most coaches most people in fact if a company or, or a competitor comes and says, hey, we want to interview you, we, we think you'd be good for this job, you at least interview just for, for nothing other than practice sake or just to see what they have to say. And Wilcox said, nope, I'm happy where I am. And I that's that says a lot about his commitment to the program, which I think will say a lot in terms of when we get to recruiting and all that stuff. So I think that's that's big. So uh, th- th- that's my answer to that question is uh, I don't think 
money making a coaching hire, I don't think that that's that's a big concern right now. Now, if you talk about other programs, baseball and basketball, for instance, yeah, you're they're cash strapped a little bit. And I went over baseball coaches contract and that has it's very incentive laden. Uh, and Calman's basketball, White King Jones, uh, his contract also very incentive laden and very much bare bones, very much bare minimum because of the financial struggles that the university has as a whole, which in part have been ameliorated by the fact that the university is going to take on about a, a third to a half of the stadium debt at California Memorial Stadium, which is going to inform the rest of this conversation. Obviously, you know, $341 million sunk into that stadium and the seismic retrofitting and the new, uh, new, it's six years old now, the the new high-performance facility there for, for all athletics, not just not just football. I know baseball works up there, uh, and, and plenty of other sports that are on the west end of campus do work on there up up on the eastern foothills. So um, I, I, I think that having the university at least assume some of that debt is going to help, but the athletic department is still going to need, I think, to downsize at some point. But that said, football drives the boat, as it does with us. So I think that if there needs to be a, a an expenditure for football, that can absolutely be made. Now, I kind of addressed the other two questions here uh, in terms of uh, the facilities and and does the, do they have the, the money to meet to meet program needs? Well, they brought in Bo Baldwin uh, as as their OC. They're paying him twice as much as he was making as a head coach at Eastern Washington. They invested in that. They invested in bringing in a head coach to coach defense and Tim DeRuiter, former Fresno State head coach. And they have are arguably, I think, three of the best recruiters on the West Coast in Marcus Tuiasopo, uh, Peter Sermon, and Tony Tuioti. You know, all, all three of those guys have been incredible recruiters. So the and and that was one of the things that I think Wilcox took a little bit. I don't know it for a fact, but it certainly fits his personality. I think he took less on his deal so that you, they could up their salary pools for assistance. So I, I think financially, in terms of football. I think the university is okay, and obviously the addition of the Under Armour deal that helps too. Ryan, the uh, if you were to talk about when we we go through all these schools, you'd think all the stuff we've heard about Cal, they would be like the poster child, you know, program for being strapped financially for all these financial problems in the athletic department. But it seems like some, you know, there've been some adjustments where the the school can help out paying for the debt for the stadium and all that. Um, over the past six months or so, did it seem like the situations got? at least a lot better on this front than maybe it was, you know, six, eight months ago. You know, I was very skeptical of new chancellor, Carol Christ, because I had heard from a lot of sources in terms of you know, donors and, and, and program alums, not, 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 not just football, but Olympic sports as well, uh, that she was going to cut. There was absolutely going to be a, a reckoning coming and it was going to happen soon. Now I didn't, uh, part of me thought that it would happen sooner rather than later, but we've seen movement and perhaps more creative movement in terms of what the university can do. It doesn't seem like they're going to operate now. I think they're going to wait until the prognosis of the patient improves and then see what they have to operate on. You know, they're going to use they're going to use some homeopathic holistic remedies first and then uh, and then see what they have to cut out. I, and some of those remedies are actually uh, acupuncture and some of them are are cupping, you know, some work and some are dubious at best. Now, the ones that I think are going to work. Edwards Track Stadium, 
for instance, and I know I'm a little heavy on the Olympic stuff, but this all this nothing works in a vacuum here. Edwards Track Stadium should be, and parts of it have been condemned. I mean, this we're talking about a 90-year-old structure that's made out of concrete. It's it is literally falling apart. There have been parts of that, like they have closed the entire western bleachers because it is not safe to be on top, near, in, or around them. You know, this is a stadium that it's it's track and field and it's soccer, and those stands are never filled. It's a, it's an easy solution to move to move track and soccer up the hill uh, to Golden Bear Field, which is just over some of the dorms at Clark Kerr. And it overlooks, it's a beautiful view. It overlooks the entire bay. You would have instantly, all you need to do is a small little concrete structure, kind of like what they have at Stanford uh, in terms of grandstands. It's easy to, to convert uh, in terms of putting a track in there and putting, uh, you know, having it big enough to be a soccer field. It's not that difficult. It's a little difficult to get to, but it's also one of the most scenic views you can possibly have in all of Pac-12 track or, or soccer. So they would... The, the the idea is to demolish the stadium, which has been used for Olympic trials in the past. There's a lot of history there. You can still keep the at the you know the structures kind of on the perimeter, the uh, the decorative stuff. Get rid of the actual structure itself. Create a hotel or housing, one or the other. You know, kind of like what what UCLA has next to Poly Pavilion. I forget the name of the hotel. Uh, Dave, you 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 might you might uh, the remember. Lesson. The Luskin yeah. Center, yeah. Yeah, the Luskin Center. Have that. Have The campus will own it. The campus gets all the profits. Or turn that into desperately needed student housing. Have it a mixed-use building. Have retail on the bottom. Have them pay rent to the university. And all of a sudden, you've just created a new revenue-generating structure on existing land. Now, athletics obviously would have to give away that land or sell it to the university, essentially. But, you know, that would transfer money from one place to the other, and that would essentially help solve part of their money problem. So that, I think, is probably the best idea that I have heard in terms of what you would see happen in terms of Cal getting their ducks in a row financially. And I, I talked with, with Carol Christ about that when she, was, uh, when she took over at the beginning of the year. Now, we'll see what happens. Cal obviously still has to replace Mike Williams as athletic director and, and that's a that's a search that I think is is fraught with tension as well because you, no matter what cards on the table no matter what Cal is going to have to cut sports. The question is which ones, and when. And if you cut as as few as one women's sport, you're going to have to cut a lot of men. So there might also be roster size reductions. You know, you could see baseball go from 36 to 30. You could see rugby go from 40 to 30. You you, you could see roster management happen. You could see softball add uh, uh, three or four girls. You could see field hockey add three or four. You, you could see soccer add three or four. There are ways to massage the numbers, but at some point, cuts are going to have to be made because football, frankly, drives the boat, and football has not won yet. They need to start winning, and I think they will. Like next year, it's a ten-win team, but that that needs to happen. Seats need to be sold, and that'll make everything a lot easier. So we we asked this first question in context of program goals, and I'm always interested, kind of what are those uh, for different particular programs? Because obviously, it's a different set of goals at like a USC than it is at Oregon State. You know, USC wants to compete for national titles. Oregon State wants to compete for a bowl game. 
where does Cal fall in that spectrum? Where do they want the football? Like, what's the realistic, like, good case scenario for Cal football on like a you know a ten year span? Like, win the conference once. Like, where where, where what, what do you kind of see as the realistic program goals? Contend for Pac-12 titles on a regular basis. Win eight to ten games a year. Keep local athletes home, and, and, and yeah, I, I, I think those are those are the big three. I mean, I, I think you, you want to win and you want to do it with local kids. Now, I, 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 another kind of uh, sort of sub goal of that is do it with smart fellas. You know, do do it with 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 guys that are going to get three or above. Do it with 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 bright young men and not have to mortgage your, you know, not have to sell your soul and get guys who can't read like former Cal quarterback, Zach Maynard, who I'm still don't think can read. Um, so, <laughs> so <Wow>. I, I <laughs> just to get Keenan Allen, right? Uh, good old coach. Oh, good old, uh, coach, uh, over to anyway. Um, you know, getting they, they they need to get they they need to do it. And they need to do it the right way. And I think with Will Cox there, especially again with that commitment that he made when Oregon came calling, this is a guy who wants to be here for ten years. So I think you know, I think realistically, in ten years, I think you would want to see them win one or two conference titles. I think you would want to see them go to a bowl. You know, eight out of the next ten years, if not ten out of the next ten, which that's tough to do. It frankly is tough to do. You know, even the best of the best programs uh, will falter in a year or, you know, will falter a year out of 10 or two years out of 10. But, yeah, do it like that. Do it the right way. And maybe, you know, in one of those years where you win the conference title, maybe slip into the Rose Bowl. <laughs> I think that's been Cal's goals for the last, for the last 60 years. So <laughs> we'll see how that goes. in 2019 might be the year, you know. You never know. <laughs> um, the second aspect of the question is about recruiting. Does Cal have the first pick of the best recruits in the area? How valuable is that pool in that area? And then how is the school thought of, how is Cal thought of, by national recruits? I think the answer to kind of all, to all those is they're getting there. Uh, the, 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 value, the value of the Bay Area we've seen in the past. There are some gems here. And Cal, is, is, over, the, over last year, Cal really focused on bringing in the top talent. They brought in the top local uh, to the two of the top local offensive linemen. You know, they, 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 they brought in a guy who was uh, one of the number one running backs in California uh, in. Uh, oh, my goodness. And Chris Brown, he's from Southern California. But but still, you, you look at the group of guys Cal brought in and I'll, I'll call it. I'll call it Justin Wilcox's first real recruiting class. Because this was the one, the first one that he had from, you know, from start to finish. And I, you know, the guys he brought in were almost entirely from California. And this year they offer the top local defensive, top local defensive tackle and Jacob Bandis, who we saw at the opening regional on Sunday. And God dang, he's, he is a monster. He has to be one of the best defensive linemen I've ever seen coming as, you know, leaving just NorCal aside, one of the best defensive linemen I've ever seen at that age, period. So they got him, 
And you know, you, you looking back at 2018, I'm bringing up their, uh, I'm bringing up the commit list now because I don't know it off the top of my head. I've kind of moved on to 20 to 2019, but you know, they brought in uh, a local guy, a JUCO guy, in Lone Toailoa, who's who's gonna, who's already enrolled. He's already playing. Colt Dowdy uh, out of college, San Mateo, another local kid. Grant, Granite Bay uh, offensive lineman Will Craig, uh, South Tahoe. If you want to stretch NorCal that far from McAllen Castles, uh, you know they they went down south and got Aaron Maldonado. Count there there is a lot of talent in the Bay Area. Obviously Najee Harris is kind of the elephant in the room. Had Cal not decided to make the coaching change then, at the point where Najee Harris would have been coming to Cal without a coach. Had either they made the coaching change before that, or if Dykes were still there, I think Najee Harris is Golden Bear. I know that's crazy, but that's from what I understand. I've talked to a lot of sources. That's what I've been told. So the 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 talent is here. Are they and they are getting there? They're getting there in terms of keeping guys home, bringing a, a local guy, a Cal alum like Burl Toler back to coach running backs is huge. Bringing Peter Sermon in, Marcus Tuiasopo being a former Oakland Raider. There's a lot, and of course, you, know, you can't ignore Steve Greatwood, who's known all across the West Coast, all across the country, for putting linemen in the league. So they're bringing in what they have West Coast coaches, West Coast guys, names that are known locally, names that have come in locally and got really good players. And we know that Steve Greatwood did that, uh, has done that many times, coming into the Bay Area and gotten guys. So they're getting there, and the talent pool absolutely is there. It's just it, they got to win. You, you you can't get guys. Oh well, we're we're, we're better. We're five and seven. We could have been worse. That doesn't get recruits. Ten wins gets recruits. What was always interesting me, to me about um, what Jeff Tedford put together was that he was doing that at a time where Pete Carroll was building that USC program, um, and you know he won ten games in two thousand four, won ten games in two thousand six, and those were kind of peak. Uh, Carroll years, and he did it with a lot of California recruits. Um, you know, Deshaun Jackson featured prominently on those teams, but also Marshawn Lynch and those sorts of guys. How was he able to do that? And how much of it was built on his recruiting strategy and, you know, what he was able to do in California recruiting against, you know, uh, USC and, and schools like that? Well, you're just thinking the LA area is so rich in talent and. It, it there's more there is more than enough talent there for for both for for you two for USC and UCLA there is more Division One talent down there than USC and and UCLA can soak up. It's there now. The key is and the key for Tedford was finding kids. Occasionally you'd win the recruiting battle like they did for Javid Best and Deshaun Jackson, but you would win the recruiting battle for a few, but you would get all the other guys that maybe they're a little bit of development away from being that true top flight guy. Maybe they just, you know, a little coaching and all of a sudden you turn a corner. And I think that's what Tedford really identified early is they were able to identify guys that not only could play in the system and play well, but guys who were smart enough and guys who had enough, enough juice that they could improve and they could get coached up. Now, of course, in later years, Tedford relied on those big stars that were, grew up watching Marshawn Lynch, Aaron Rodgers, and and relied more on the reputation. So he got some bigger guys, again, like Keenan Allen, uh, but they never really panned out. Uh, you know, Vimawala, uh, and the list goes on in terms of, of these really top flight guys 
that came in, uh, you know, uh, the Chris McCain, uh, you know, guys that came in and didn't really do much. You know, they were okay. Obviously, they're in the NFL, very talented, but they were never able to do much together. They were, they wound up becoming more me's than we's. And what we've seen with Justin Wilcox is, and really we saw with with, with Sonny Dykes, just with no attention paid to the, def- the defensive side of the ball, is there is recruiting exclusively we's. I wrote in my analysis of the 2018 class, so this is not a sexy class. This is not your James Bond tuxedo with the Bulgari watch. This is not that class. This is a class that's got work boots on and dirty jeans and is going to and is going to get dirty and is going to get their hands into the muck and is going to get this team better and they recruited O-line, D-line, linebackers and that's again the focus of this next class is D-line, linebackers, big guys, build your team from the inside out. That's what we saw early Tedford exclusively, almost not exclusively, but he, he went largely to the JUCO route to bring in guys that had ships on their shoulders who would play, play immediately, and be just sons of bitches on the field. And Aaron Rodgers was one of those guys. So you got to get those guys in. You don't want to reach, and you don't want to get guys just purely because they have stars. You know, Cal's going after guys. It, it, Justin Wilcox was looking at Aaron Maldonado when he was in eighth grade and picked him as the guy that he wanted. Now, is Aaron Maldonado a really good player? Is he one of the one of the better D linemen in California? Absolutely. But it was that relationship that was formed so long ago when before he really developed where you could see that personality go, that guy is going to eat somebody's heart on the field. I want that guy. That's what they're trying to get. Have you been impressed with, uh, it sounds like you are, with Justin Wilcox is coming in. I mean, just... Overall, I like the philosophy of bringing in established as a rookie head coach, bringing in, you know, former head coaches as coordinators. But on the specifically for this part, the recruiting aspect of it, um, and, you know, I, I think there was some mixed, I guess, mixed reviews about him as a recruiter. But it seems like you've, you've been impressed with what he's been able to do, the staff he's put together and how they've recruited their philosophy and all of that. I think the mixed reviews come from the fact that Justin Wilcox, when you're talking with him as a media member, He's he's very much a football nerd. And but he also has a certain way of doing things and a certain way of conducting himself and a certain amount of information that's let out. Wilcox This is one of the first coaches that when I'm in the room, I know I am not the smartest person in the room. You know, there are other coaches that you walk in the room and go, oh, this guy's a used car salesman. I, you know, you, you get that feeling that they are kind of play acting. That's not Wilcox. Wilcox doesn't. Wilcox is not a good actor. Uh, he is, but he places he plays his hands close to the vest. But he has a structure, and he ha- and from day one he's had a way of doing things that may be frustrating for those of us that want to know more and that want to dig in. And that want a little more access, but at the same time, everything has a purpose for him. There is nothing that that program does that does not serve a purpose, which is it's very efficient. It's a very smooth operation. And the fact that Wilcox is the way he is, he's completely different with us than he is with his players or with recruits. Completely different person. But I think it's just that he guards so much around media 
Very rarely does he open up, when he, and when he does, for instance, we were at the the National Signing Day presser, and you know he was he gushed about his players, and and again was very utilitarian, very matter of fact. You know he didn't overly praise guys. You know Tedford at one point called Trayvon said that Trayvon Briggs, uh, a 2010 signee, looked like Marshawn Lynch when he ran. There was nothing like that from Wilcox. And again, fairly guarded. And then he came back into the room after he had left. And said, "You know what? I have an idea. I want to. I want to have like a, a clinic with you guys. Come in. We'll do some chalkboard work. We'll we'll get you to understand why we do what we do when we do it. Just so that you guys, a, don't ask us any more stupid questions about why we didn't do this or do that. And also, so you guys know football. I mean, let's face it. I'm a reporter." I'm a writer. I'm a journalist. I'm a baseball guy, and I can write. But do I know all the finer points of football? No. I know a hell of a lot more than I did when I started this job 10 years ago. But I don't know nearly as much as, uh, you know, hey, uh, Ryan is you or David is you. But he wants to educate us. He wants us to understand football. So he wants us to kind of come along with the ride with him. And that's where you see, whoa, no – I've never heard of a coach saying, let's bring the media in and talk and talk shop and like do chalk talk and actually get it. I've never heard of a coach doing that. So you see something like that and you go, this guy, this guy's a little different. This guy's a little different from, from what, what you've seen. And, and then you start thinking that this is maybe this is why people, you know, sing his praises is, is, is that kind of idea. So, it, it, there's certain occasionally the mask slips and you see and, and then another time he was talking with us about pizza the best pizza options and i've been around berkeley for you know for 14 years and he goes no 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 this is where you go this is how you store the pizza so that it's good on day two and three i'm like oh all right just school me why don't you <laughs> so uh yeah that wilcox is definitely a guy i can see being a real good closer and a real good opener. He's the one who offers all these kids. He doesn't just have the assistants do it. He does it, which is impressive to me. Definitely. Um, and then our third section, uh, this is the politics section. Um, does football have the necessary institutional support and competence from the school administration? And how would you describe the factional divisions among the fan base, boosters, and insiders? Oh. Uh. See, now, this is where we get to Cal calling itself sideways. Uh, competence has never been a watchword when it comes to Cal. I, I, I don't think anyone would, would dispute that fact. Football, I think, operates in somewhat of a bubble. Because you kind of essentially have a vice chancellor for football uh, in the head coach, I think it operates in a bubble. And Cal's decisions in athletics are sometimes just just stupefying. They have found a way to make the right decisions with baseball. With, or sorry, with, with football. <laughs> Certainly not with baseball up until uh, this last summer. But there are a lot of competing interests, I think, within the athletic department. Or at least there have been. I think you look at the kerfuffle that happened with Eric Musselman and basketball. Uh, a year ago, where you had an administrator who was a good friend of Musselman want to at least interview him, and they did, 
and then Eric Musselman turned it into a raise for himself and bashed the Cal program on the way out of the door of the interview publicly to media to media. So there are competing interests that he certainly gets the feeling like uh, to borrow uh, uh, PJ Flex uh, trademark where no one's rowing the boat in the same direction. They're rowing in circles because everyone's rowing in their own direction. Football has somewhat been immune from that somewhat. But I don't it, and I don't think that it will fall victim to that. And I think they do have the institutional support. I think with a guy like Wilcox who gets Cal, who's been here before. And, that, and that's the difference. Coaches who've been here a while who get the way things go. Generally, things are easier for them because they know how to navigate the bureaucracy that is otherwise infuriating to anybody who hasn't been around it. Uh, the real, it'll be interesting to, to see who they get as athletic director. I don't think that athletic director will do anything with Wilcox. I think Wilcox is safe. I think his staff is safe. I think that the university, through Mike Williams, the current athletic director's efforts, has there's been a little bit of a healing in terms of campus and athletics. They've come together a little bit more. But the problem is you have a lot of faculty members who are anti-athletics, period. They don't they want Cal to be like Cornell or MIT. You know, they don't want athletic teams that get sponsorship deals or that have eight, you know, seventy thousand seat stadiums. They don't want that. They they think there should be seventy thousand people to watch the academic decathlon or the debate team. You know, and, and that's an issue. That is an issue that Cal has had to face for 70, 80 years. You've had that issue. It's way more prominent now because the administration has essentially allowed it to flower. They've allowed it to flourish, and, and you've got to nip that stuff in the bud when it happens. I know that sounds a little fascist, but everyone's got to be rowing in the same direction. And when you have vocal faculty members who go to every newspaper on the, that they can possibly find and rip Cal for everything from not being on their toes in terms of sexual harassment to obviously uh, Cal defensive lineman Ted Agu dying because of lack of medical oversight or, or what have you, or, or, or the issue with field hockey where it took $10 million when it should have taken three to get their field done because of all the legal wrangling that Cal tried to essentially some elements in the in the administration tried to essentially strangle field hockey so they wouldn't have to deal with it anymore without even considering for a moment that Title IX would have them in court for the rest of their lives. And all the legal wrangling there, it cost uh, something that should have cost less than $3 million wound up costing the university $10 million. It's stuff like that that is infuriating. But... In terms of football, again, it's in a bubble. The problem football has is attendance. That's the biggest issue, and that is something that is at a conference level. And we've talked about it, you, you both of you and I, uh, <clears throat> as has as have the rest of us published in the Pac-12, in terms of attendance, you know, we've seen it on a Thursday night, a 7 or 8 p.m. kickoff at the Coliseum, or a Thursday night or a Friday night, 7 or 8 p.m. kickoff of the Rose Bowl. Are you kidding? No one's going to get there. <laughs> it's going to be a it's going to be a Dodger game. Like they're going to get there in the third inning. 
You know, it's, you, people are not going to be able to go through L.A. traffic to get there. The Bay Area has its own traffic issues, but people are not going to watch. They're not going to come out on a weeknight, especially when Cal alums are spread out from the Silicon Valley to the South Bay in San Jose to the city to the peninsula to Oakland and the North Bay and Napa and Santa Rosa. And, oh, by the way, Sacramento and Davis, you know, and, and Tahoe, you know, they can come out for a 1 p.m. game and get home by a reasonable hour or a noon game or God, be still my beating heart. Remember when there were 11 a.m. starts? Good night. I, I miss those, even though it's a pain in the ass to even though it's a pain in the ass to wake up and get a stadium at nine. But, you know, still you have such a, a wide swath in Northern California that comes out to Cal games that can't anymore because it's, it takes too long. If you're driving from Sacramento, that's, that's, that's four and a half hours in the car. And if you start at eight o'clock at night, they're not getting home till two in the morning. You can't do that. Start times need to be fixed. Larry Scott needs to pull his head out of his rear and realize that the only audience, the only reason that the Pac-12 football does well on the East coast in those hours is because bars have their TVs turned on to whatever sport there is. It's either it's either college football, it's either Pac-12 football that a bunch of drunks are watching, <laughs> or it's cricket or the English Premier League. They're going to watch somebody kick a ball or hit a ball or hit a person with a ball. It's just, It doesn't matter who's playing. It's the only reason people are watching it is because it's sport, period. Um. <laughs> Well, Ryan, we got some Twitter questions, too, from the fans. You want to uh, jump into some of those? Yeah. All right. So this is from at uh, Shinkar Gupta. Hopefully I said that correctly. What is a realistic record for Cal this year? Do they have the ability to challenge for the North title in the next two to three years? Uh, Ten wins and yes. I would say eight, eight, eight to ten wins this year. And absolutely, because you know they they get all the toughest games at home, so I, I I think they'll be in real good shape. The biggest question mark for me is quarterback is, and that's a huge question mark. Do they go with Ross Bowers again, or do they go with Brandon McElwain, the South Carolina transfer, or do they go with Chase Garbers, who had he come in early a semester early, which unfortunately his school wasn't equipped to do. I think he would have started last year. And then you have a real competition between him and, and McElwain. But, hey, you know, Bowers is a year older. He's had a year under his belt, and everyone's got uh, everyone's got experience. Oh, and by the way, they're bringing back Demetrius Robertson, who who had a red shirt last year because he, he got hurt. He'd been dealing with an injury since his freshman year. So you're bringing back your best player, oh, and a 1,000-yard rusher, and your entire starting offensive line? Yeah, I like their chances. And then we've got another one from Mr. TPSM. Uh, is the lack of an on-campus dedicated training facility for football really that much of a handicap for Cal in recruiting success? Well, it's not true. That's inaccurate. <laughs> they have an on-campus. They have a field that they can use, an auxiliary field that used to be the field hockey turf to the north of the stadium that has football lines on it has field goal posts, and in fact, they use that for practice quite often. They also have their indoor practice and training facility that has about 20 yards worth of turf on it, or about eh, 30, 35 inside. So that's not accurate. They actually, they, they do. Now, they don't have an on-campus 
dedicated basketball training facility, and that's kind of the the next thing on the to do list. But yeah, they 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 have on they, you know they can use Memorial Stadium pretty much whenever they want. They can use the the auxiliary turf pretty much whenever they want. That's not an issue. In fact, that's why they that's why they turned the field hockey turf into a football practice field so that they could help recruiting. We had one from uh, Danny Yao at DC Yao 40. How did Cal win the recruiting battle for golf back in the day? And what was the story? <laughs> His dad and mom both went to Cal. His dad was a, was a third baseman for the golden bears. Wound up becoming a major league catcher. Uh, Cal was in his blood from day one. This was a kid who grew up rooting for Cal. He was a kid who grew up with Cal going to Cal games, having season tickets. I mean, it, it, it was a no, I mean, it was, it was, it was as easy a recruiting win as they could have had. And you also have to remember there weren't a lot of other schools that were offering Jared Goff at the point that Cal offered him. When Cal offered him and when he committed, that was when Zach Klein was still the savior of the program. And I was like, well, why the hell are you offering this kid? And then I watched his tape. I'm like, oh, oh, I get it now. <laughs> uh, but but, but not, not there wasn't a lot of recruiting buzz around Goff. There, there just wasn't. He was, you know, Marin Catholic was not, uh, was not this, this D1 uh, factory. They, you know, the, the, plenty of kids have come out of, of Marine Catholic since, but, you know, it was not a place where you go and to go to find uh, a Division One football player. It just wasn't. And and Cal was there. He again, he was a Cal legacy. It was it was uh, surprisingly there wasn't a battle. There wasn't even a skirmish. It was well, okay, I got the offer from Cal. Guess I'm going to Cal. That was it. And then uh, we've got two from Stephen Hinkle. I think we've kind of already answered both. I'm not going to ask the one about the stadium debt because he went uh, into great depth on that. Um, but he does have a question about Wilcox. Um, since Cal front-loaded Wilcox's contract, uh, bonuses higher in years one and two than in years three through five, does Cal expect Wilcox to leave after this season? Does this no. also mean Cal expects they can get a good up-and-coming coach as a replacement but can't keep him long-term? I think he's reading a lot into that. Um, I, 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 I don't think that's it. I think that it's a, it's a first contract for a first coach, uh, or for a first-year head coach. I would expect that contract to get renegotiated um, you know, in a year or two's time. I, I, I don't think that – I honestly don't think those will hold. I think I think they wanted it to be really incentive laden in the front so that he would get the program up to speed as soon as possible. But remember, a lot of folks don't know this, but I talked to plenty of sources that, that confirm it. When Cal gave its extension to Sonny Dykes, it wasn't to keep him here. Cal gave Sonny Dykes the extension to show prospective candidates because they knew he was looking around. He had already done that 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 offseason. And it was offseason of 2015. They had already they wanted to show prospective candidates that they could pay and they could pay handsomely. And I think that there is wiggle room there. I think my getting Wilcox Cal got a cheaper head coach and they can make his deal better. 
as if they want to. And I think that you see, I would, I would wager if Cal does what I think they're going to do this year, if they win 10 games, if they, uh, either contend for the conference for the conference title or, uh, or, or they get close to it and get a, a, a pretty good bowl game. Then I think you see, then I think you see a little bit of, uh, you see them start to look at the rest of that contract. I don't, I don't think Cal expects him to leave. And given the, given his behavior over the last, you know, 18 months, over the last uh, 18 months, I wouldn't either. Again, he said no to Oregon. That's his alma mater. If, if there were a dream job for any coach, it would be to bring your alma mater back to prominence. See Harbaugh, comma, Jim. Uh, I think that he's he's here. He's here for the long haul. All right. Ryan Gorsey does a great job covering the Cal Bears for BearTerritory.net. Thanks so much for coming on, Ryan, and sharing your insights. It's always great to uh, get more in-depth knowledge of what's going on with the Bears there. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks, Ryan. Okay, Dave, that was uh, pretty cool stuff. We know a lot more about Cal and Stanford than we did about an hour and a half ago. What would you think? <laughs> we know a lot more. <laughs> so much more. It's hard to even describe how much more we know. Um, we are all just brimming over with knowledge. And yet we still have more podcasting to do, Mr. Abraham. We did. You know, and we, we forgot to follow up with RJ, who was a little verbose, like Ryan said, um, about your, the question, your really good follow-up about what's the realistic expectations for the program. What would you say for Stanford, the, the realistic expectations? Um, yeah, are? we did forget to follow up with that. Um, I mean, my uh, I, I think this is – they've proven what they're doing now is sustainable. I mean, they've done it for 10 years. So I would think being, you know, consistently in the mix for the North every single year yes. with – um, frequent, uh, what we previously called BCS bowls, and I guess we call them New Year's Six bowls now. Um, with frequent, you know, New Year's Six bowls, I think it's like, you know, I think they can expect to get to, you know, even when it evens out a little bit, and you know, the other programs have their surges and it has its downward, you know, trends. You know, averaging out where they get two or three of those appearances a decade, I think, is about right, and probably more. But I think even as like a baseline. You know, consistently compete for the North and, you know, have have, you know, three or four really elite seasons every decade. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, they can compete for the, the conference title every year or be in the mix for it, you know, um, and they, they have been. I mean, they're, you know, finishing first or second or whatever. It's, they're they're They've always been in that mix. And I think they can continue to do that. Um, I think that's a realistic th- expectation, at least for now. If they, I mean, like you said, when you were talking about it, like what if they fell off? And be, I'm not gonna say they'd be one eleven, but they're like a six and six team again. How easy will it be to get back up and compete again? I don't know. It seems like it's one of those things. I love that he said it was a big bang when uh, Jim Harbaugh was there, um, right? But will the you know is life gonna be sustained or is an asteroid hitting the, uh, you know, hitting the Earth and uh, it's gonna be really hard to get back up to that New Year six level, you know, bowl level again? I don't know, but uh, it seems like if, the way they're going now, they should be able to keep it going at least for a while. I don't even know what you're talking about, Big Bang Theory, asteroids. We all know the world started 10,000 years ago, all right? Yes. We all know this. This is absolute truth and fact. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> we have just throwing it out there, the creationists, just throwing bombs. Um, we've reached that point in the podcast. Uh, we got all some right. email questions. You want me to start off here? We got a spring ball one from, let's Mike, do it. from let's, Michael. Let's, 
let's live this. It's a four-parter. And then I remember I mentioned at the top of the show, I'll read his by the way first. He said, I have no problem with you signing advertisers. You guys provide a lot of good content and entertainment. I am happy to see you get some financial gain from it. Well, thanks, Michael. Yeah. Um, okay, first question. What sorts of things do coaches hope to accomplish during spring ball? I realize it's different for every coach, and it will be different for a new coach who is installing a new system. But what is the range of goals? Uh, it can be very specific. Um, figure out a position battle. You know, see guys on the field. I think for a new coach, as what UCLA is running into this year, it's seeing guys in the flesh for the first time, actually doing football things. Um, you know, you can watch as much film as you'd like, but it's different when you get to see how they move in person, how they move in a practice setting, that whole thing. Um, I think position battles, um, but a lot of those don't even get fully ironed out until fall. Um, and I think I, I, I don't think they emphasize over much too much like specific installation of offenses and defenses and, and such. I mean, I, obviously, they have to install some to do some of the scrimmage situations, but I think it's more just um uh, a time for open competition for personnel. At least that's how I've seen it at UCLA. I think they do most of their like, you know, deep install for the season come fall camp and obviously during the summer. But um, spring is more of a time for uh, figuring out those individual battles and 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 doing that sort of thing. Yeah, and I think you get some young guys reps and you know more live sort of reps. I think the spring game is a you know way to 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 show everyone, you know, how competitive they are and put them in competitive situations. And it's like, it's different for every program. I think it could be different every year. You get these 15 practices and you can do with them what you will, you know, and uh, some people have a huge spring game where it's like full on hitting and tackling and all that kind of stuff. And other people, it's just more of a, a glorified practice. So I think it just depends on what you need as a program that year. And it's up to the coaching staff to kind of figure that out. Uh, Number two, as fans, what should we be looking for in the reports that come out? Wow. Um, yeah, we don't mean, know yet. I, I guess the question <laughs> is what significance can you put on any of it? Um, and I'll say the same thing I say about all practice reports. Take them with a huge grain of salt. Um, I think you can take individual evaluations away. So if you know somebody you trust writes that, hey, this guy looks pretty good. He looks like he can make an impact this year. And it's some guy you haven't heard of before or hasn't made an impact before. That's something you can maybe put some weight on. But if it's something more like, oh, it looks like they're going to run the ball more this year, or it looks like they've really figured out their passing attack, eh, it's kind of a zero something in practice where if the passing attack looks good, does that mean the passing attack is actually good? Or does it mean the pass defense is just atrocious? Um, And so those sorts of things, I would always kind of mm, don't know about those, but individual evaluations of particular guys or, you know, actual reporting on, you know, who's getting more reps in a certain situation. That's the stuff that I think you can put a little, uh, put a little weight on. Yeah, I would agree there. And there's always cases, especially guys that redshirt, maybe the school you root for had a highly ranked player that for whatever reason, just redshirted. And sometimes they have uh, a hard time making that transition from high school to college. The following spring, they got things figured out. They got a you know almost a year under their belt, and they're looking like that player you saw when they were coming out of high school. So I think situations like that uh, can be very interesting. Um, you know, sometimes players put a lot of weight on the offseason or get faster or quick. I think individual stuff uh, is always interesting. And like Dave mentioned, who's getting reps, uh, position changes, things like that. So more, yeah, more individual players and, and their development as opposed to schemes and things like that. 
Um, three, what can we learn by attending practice? So I guess I don't know how many practices are open, Dave, but USC is open. I think UCLA is open now, right, for Chip Kelly? UCLA is open for all of spring and uh, maybe for fall camp. We'll see. Wow. Um, that's a that's a you know departure from the normal Chip Kelly way, I would say, right? It's definitely a departure from Chip Kelly. I think he's um, he was willing to make concessions because UCLA has had a tradition that Jim Mora tried to fight um, of having open practices. Uh, Mora closed season practices, but he was never able to successfully close spring um, or the first two weeks of fall camp. And I don't know that Chip Kelly's ready to fight that battle. I imagine maybe that'll be something that comes later on. But uh, for now, UCLA's got open practices. Um, as for the answer to this question, I don't think it's that different from the second one. It's not like a lot of the people reporting on this stuff has some special knowledge that you don't have you can make your own assessments about how guys look so it can be interesting from that perspective um it can be i mean certain practices can be fun i'm not going to say they're always fun um for us it obviously is work so a lot of times it is not fun um but it can be fun to watch scrimmage periods to watch you know the guys compete against each other um some of the some of my favorite drills um watching ucla practices over the years have been one-on-one receiver DB battles. Those are so much fun to watch, and the guys get so competitive. Um, And you can kind of see, if you're in person, you can kind of see personalities a little bit more, see who's, like, you know, always talking trash. I'm looking at you, Jordan Lasley. Um, You can see, like, who's always having fun, see who's a little disengaged, Um, those sorts of things that probably aren't necessarily ever going to make it into a report. But they're the kinds of things you can see in person that maybe give you a little bit more insight into internal dynamics on the team and maybe, you know, something that you see show up on the field. It might be, you know, a little bit from that. Or if you hear about, like, you know, locker room issues from some guy and then, you you know, you you watched him in spring and he was, you know, yelling at everybody on the field. Well, you have some context then. Yeah, all great points by Dave. And I think if you're listening to this or if you're a member of one of our sites on 24-7 Sports, I mean, you're you're into this and you want to know you, everything you can. And I think if you go in person, you certainly can pick stuff up. And I always loved when when USC had open practices and, and fans would post what they thought from what they saw because they're getting a different perspective. They're usually in a different area. Um, they're going to see different things. And you can't watch, you know, 105 players all at once. People will ask you about, uh, Don't tell me what I can't do. A backup like guard, you know, like uh, this red shirting guard that's uh, on the scout team wearing a black jersey. Like I, you know, no, it's hard to see him on the other side of the field. But maybe you get the better perspective. That's something you're interested in, and you can watch. So I think you can pick up a lot just from you know, not just from reading what everyone's there writing, but you go yourself and you might see this player make like a one-handed catch, and and he's a red shirt freshman or something that no one's really seen yet. And you're like, wow. And then you're at the game and he does something similar and you can, you can recall, you know, I saw him do that in practice and blah, blah, blah. I mean, I think it, if you really love your team that you're following or whatever, you know, I think it really would help to go. And if, if you have an opportunity to go, I would suggest going uh, to open practice. Like Dave said, it's not necessarily like the greatest thing in the world, but um, you love talking about this team. I think you learn a lot just by showing up and watching in person and you will have a different, uh, just a, a different way to, to look at it than Dave or I who went to like 50 practices in a row and you're just tired of watching practice. You go right. for the first time, you're going to get a fresh view. Uh, number four, does the spring game mean anything? I mean, the short answer is no. Um, it's just, a, I mean, 
functionally, I would think about it as just another practice, really. Um, I mean, yeah, some schools do more of a quote-unquote game than other schools, but even then, I mean, I don't know that it tells you anything except maybe who sustains a serious injury because these guys are using an opportunity to hit each other for no reason. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't take much from them beyond it's just another, you know, look at, again, individual players because the team competing against the team doesn't really give us context um, because we don't have the ability to say the offense looks really good because, yeah, but does it look really good because the defensive line is, you know, weak or the linebackers don't really know what they're doing or, or whatever it is. And it's just it's a little bit harder to make a qualitative assessment. So, again, I think it just is another opportunity to assess individuals. I agree there. And I think sometimes you can uh, we've seen too many times where a player has a huge spring game and everyone's like, oh, my God, he's going to be amazing. Yeah. And then he never does anything. Um, so there's you have to look at the context of that. I think you learn more if you go to individual practice than the spring game itself, because you don't know what, you know, we've seen in spring games where maybe the offense is struggling. So they'll they'll run out like the scout team defense against the first team offense just to make them look a little better. You know, there's all kinds of tricks you can play. So I, I would agree with Dave. I mean, you can. You know, you make some your own assessments, but don't look too much into it. That this guy had an amazing spring game, so he's going to be a star next year. You know, it doesn't. That's not necessarily the case. Yeah. All right, uh, we've got a question from our man Bernie. Um, with all the coaching changes in the southern section of the Pac-12 this year, and the subsequent recruiting turmoil that resulted, do you feel USC benefited from having their staff in place? Um. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if there's any any they picked up any recruits because of some of the the turmoil. Um, they they kind of did what they normally do. They didn't really go all in on the early signing period. Uh, started to do that a little bit later. Got you know got ten guys, but got a whole bunch of guys on signing day. Kind of their normal mo, their normal routine. So I don't know if they necessarily like took advantage of that. Like Kevin Sumlin coming in, was there someone that? They stole away from Arizona. No, not really. I mean, I, I don't think it hurt. Um, you know, maybe having, you know, maybe they would have lost a couple of guys later if they had coaches that had been there a while that didn't switch. I mean, I guess that's a potential, but I don't see anyone that they really picked up somebody because of a coaching change, at least off the top of my head. And then the uh, second question is also, do you feel with Chip Kelly and Kevin Sumlin now in the conference, there will be a more even distribution of talent in 2019. So I'm guessing in the 2019 recruiting class, he means. That. Yeah, I think both Kelly and, and Kevin Sumlin are going to recruit really well. And, you know, we've seen early returns on Herm Edwards. It seems to be doing all right. I, I think having more established, you know, higher profile coaches uh, will certainly help. Now, will you be able to take uh, like a, a five star away from USC that's you know, from modern day or something like, will Brew McCoy go somewhere else? But USC, you know, he's like one of the top players. If it's like a feeder school that the guys normally go to USC, I don't know. I mean, that that'll be interesting if if Chip Kelly can go in there and, and take him away, or Kevin Sumlin or someone. So I think they'll be they'll certainly give Clay Helton a run for their money. Um, I don't know if you're going to say it's all going to be evenly distributed. USC gets this disproportionate amount of five star players. Uh, UCLA still gets theirs, and I think Chip, with Chip Kelly, they'll get more. So I think, you know, probably a little bit, but it, it certainly puts the USC staff on notice that they're going to have to recruit harder because there are these more established, higher profile coaches that I think are capable of taking some of those guys away that USC would typically get. 
Yeah, I don't. I, honestly, I don't know how much it'll, it's going to change the the relative recruiting landscape. I think someone will elevate Arizona a little bit. Um, the thing that I, I I don't know. I guess it's just like this collective um, amnesia. Jim Mora recruited really well at UCLA. Like it wasn't recruiting that he why he sucked. And I don't even know how much better Chip Kelly is going to recruit than Jim Mora. The issue wasn't talent. It was, um, uh, complete horseshit scheme. So, <laughs> um, I mean, yeah. So if, if, if Chip Kelly coaches better then the talent is going to suddenly look a lot better, that's on the UCLA roster currently on the roster, not even guys you need to recruit. So, I mean, we'll see on all that, but I don't know. I, I don't know if any of these hires fundamentally change the landscape. I mean, it probably elevates Arizona to closer to a average Pac-12 program in terms of recruiting talent. In terms of talent, um, I think someone will be able to do that, but I don't know that it like suddenly evens out the playing field. I think USC's USC, even in down years, um, is recruiting at like a top ten-ish level. In up years, which they're in right now. They're going to consistently recruit top five classes. That's just how it's going to be. Um, and that's just kind of the natural way USC recruits. Um, you know, Washington has its thing going where it's recruiting its kind of guys, but it's also pulling in some talent. who have seen the kind of teams that Chris Peterson is producing and wants to be a part of that. So they're going to be recruiting at a top 20 level. UCLA has rarely dropped out of the top 20 level. Um, so they're going to be probably in that top 20, top 25 level. Um, and then it's just kind of all filled in after that. And I, I, I just, I, I don't, I, I guess I don't see any couple of hires changing the hierarchy too much. All right. Um, move on to uh, Taylor. Sure. Quick shout out. Hey, Ryan and Dave. Uh, can you do a quick shout out to my good friend and longtime listener, Trent? For his service in our military, the U.S. Air Force. He's being deployed soon to South Korea for 13 months. Man, he just missed the Olympics. Uh, he's a huge yeah. USC fan and huge fan of the podcast of Champions. Thanks for all you do. And we love the podcast uh, from Taylor. Yeah, Taylor, that's awesome. Shout out to Trent. Shout out to Trent. Korea. That's going to be, um, yeah, that's not exactly like where I would pick for my deployment at this point. But um Good for you, and uh, hope you hope you do well over there. Yeah, thank, thanks for the service, Trent. And I've never been to Korea. I do like what's the the Colby beef? Those like little ribs things. Those are good. I'm not a huge money. Kim, I'm not a huge kimchi guy. I like a little bit of that stuff, but um, there's a lot of good Korean food I like to get. I used to, when I play poker a lot, they'd have a lot of Korean food. I'd try that. Yeah, <laughs> Korean barbecue is great. Yes, I don't know if that's. Is Korean barbecue one of those things that's like really big in America that doesn't actually exist in Korea? Like like fortune cookies and stuff? Yeah. I, I kind of feel like it must be because generally like the foods I like from like other countries, it turns out that it's like, oh, yeah, nobody eats that here. You're, you're a garbage American as always. Um, I don't know. I, I would think some of the stuff is like, but yeah, maybe not as much of the barbecue. Yeah, for sure. All right, we got uh, Anthony. You ready for Anthony? Yeah, this is our last one, huh? Yeah. Nice. We've reached we've reached the end here. Uh, is David Shaw or Chris Peterson a top five coach nationally? <sighs> and then he says, currently there are only four active coaches who have won a national championship. Nick Saban, Urban Meyer, Dabo Swinney, Jimbo Fisher. Um, and then which current Pac-12 coach has the best chance to join this list? 
All right, so I would drop. I mean, I don't think Jimbo Fisher is in any conversation for the top five coach nationally. Agreed. Even though he won a, a title. Yeah, I just kind of think it was a confluence of circumstances. I think he's a good coach. I just don't think he's like in that super elite category. Okay. That's it fair. Fair. Saban and Urban Meyer, obviously. Yes. Uh, Dabo Swinney. Yes. What he's done at Clemson in the last four or five years is just bonkers. So I'm going to say yes. And so is uh, I'm going to say David Shaw is is not top five for me nationally. Um, Chris Peterson's the more interesting topic of discussion here. Yeah, I would say me. no on Shaw. I would agree with you on Shaw. Um, I mean, they're awesome. You know, great coach, probably top ten, but not. I would not say top five. Chris Peterson, you could make a good argument. Um, I would say he's fringe top five. So who would be in that top five right now? So you've got Saban, Meyer, Swinney. Okay. Um, would you put Kirby Smart in the top five? No. Not no, enough longevity? And, and it's not necessarily just like he just hasn't been around long enough. Um, I would need but to what see he's a little done bit more body of work. That, I mean, he took a Georgia team that was like, eh, you know, nine, ten wins and – he took a Georgia team that's always good, yeah, and, and made, he made it them great, better, a little bit better. I mean, <laughs> it, maybe he's like great, and we'll see if he's able to sustain success for a few years, and then maybe he carves in there. But I just don't see it at this point. Um, Jethro Franklin. Did I wait? Did I screw that up? Yeah. You just called him Jethro. Yeah. Oh my God, that was the former USC. <laughs> Former USC defensive line Which coach. Was, it was great. It was great. And I was like, wow, you're making a deep cut there. Uh, <laughs> uh, James Franklin, no. Yes. I mean, he's top 10, top 15 for me, but not not top five. Wow, not uh, even top 10. Jeff I mean, Jim Harbaugh? I mean, he hasn't necessarily mm. lit the world on fire at Michigan, but no, it's kind of building for this next year. I guess we'll see after next year. I would still have him pretty high up there. Um the other question here is Chip Kelly. Where does he sit in the in the in this hypothetical ranking? He would be top ten for me. I couldn't put him top five just because he hasn't been in college for a while. But you know, he yeah. had he had a great run. I mean, there was like a four year run that was awesome. But um, yeah, I think you know, in a couple of years, if he does something similar, New Year Six Bowls at UCLA, then for sure. But I, I need to see a couple of years out of him right now. So are we saying Chris Peterson has the best chance to join this list then? Yeah, I would think so. Um, just the consistency of the program. He's all, the only, you know, Pac-12, you know, he made the playoff. Um, so I, I would go with him. Um, who else would you put in your top five? Like, I'm trying to think. I'm like racking my brain, and maybe it's just that we're on hour five of this podcast today. But, <laughs> like, I can't even... I can't even think of the names. Um, like, there's a lot of young guys. Like, Scott Frost, I think, could maybe get in this list at some point yeah. in his career. Um, I don't think he's there yet. Um, Tom Herman, we'll see what he's able to do at Texas. I think he could absolutely get his name on this list at some point. Um, it's weird, because you've had some turnover. You know, like, Bob Stoops isn't there anymore. I mean, there's some. there's been some turnover, too. Um, yeah, I'm curious. It's... I don't think it's all that clear who would you say is top five. So maybe instead of fringe, I think Chris Peterson, you'd be you put him up there. Yeah, I think he might be like in that, you know, five, that four or five area. I mean, I don't think there's anybody who's clear after the top three. 
and hell, maybe Jimbo Fisher is in there. I mean, I, I, I said that offhand because I don't consider him at all in the same category as, you know, Meyer, Saban, Swinney, but maybe, maybe, you know, he, he's, he's just in that slight tier below. Um, but like, I would take Chris Peterson over Jimbo Fisher. Like, I, I, I think one's clearly like a guy who can, who has shown the ability to sustain a program and also build a program. And Jimbo Fisher, I mean, took Florida State to what Florida State does. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He did get. He did get. He did get that win. What about um? Why am I blanking on his name at Auburn? Uh, can't. Well, he was almost. Gus Malzahn. Yeah, Gus Malzahn. He was almost fired, and then you know turns around. He, you know. Got that championship game. He's beat Alabama. He's done some good things, but I don't think he'd be a top five guy. Yeah, Gus Malzahn for me is kind of like um, um, uh, a, a sort of a rich man's Mike Leach, which is pretty good. Um, but he's kind of a it's kind of a quirky guy with a quirky kind of offensive system. And um, I, I don't know if it could ever be in a top five conversation for me, but I think he is like top ten. Yeah. Um, Interesting question, Anthony. Yeah, very good. And it made us think that there are no elite coaches in college football, so that's fun. Yeah, it's hard. Like, Just because Jimbo won a championship, it's like you almost have to put him in there because there's just not that many of them to go around. So, um, Where do you uh, where do you put Lane Kiffin? Ooh, uh, not anywhere near that, but I like <laughs> what he's – I mean, I, I like what he's doing, like at FAU. It, it, like, he's doing – what I love is that I, I made, because he had a pretty good year this year, it took what was obviously a joke question and made it something that you had to do, like, one of those caveats for, where you're like, well, obviously not, but, I mean, yeah, he did have a good year this year. It was great. I loved, loved every bit of it. I like, I um, mean, honestly, like, he, I you know, he did a lot of, you know, not good things earlier in his career, and I think he really did learn stuff from Nick Saban. And uh, I'm, he's going to be someone that's going to be interesting to watch going forward. Uh, if he has another big year with FAU, and then someone hires him, and if he's able to, you know, build that back up. So you, the good thing is when you get crazy opportunities when you're young, and even if you screw them up badly, like I think he did, you're, you're young still, and, and you have a chance to uh, to rebuild them. Now, not everyone's going to to have the same opportunities. The fact that he got to go to Alabama and win a national championship and learn from like the greatest coach in college football history, that certainly helped him, you know. Um, FAU took a chance on him, and uh, if he's winning another year or two, I think a real program, a Power 5 program, will, will hire him again. The perpetual youth of a 42-year-old ass man. Like, I mean, <laughs> yeah, okay, he was he was young. He was 38 years old in 2013. I'm not going to be 38 for six years. <laughs> You fail spectacularly, and because you're Monty Kiffin's son, you just get job after job after job. That's my rant. Nice. Uh, Clay Helton, where's he on this list? Ooh, um, good question. It's I mean, it's, it's hard to say with only two years in. You know, he's done a lot. Are we in saying the two top thirty? Top thirty? Yeah, I would say that. Top twenty? Uh, probably not top twenty. Not top twenty. I, maybe top twenty-five. I would say top thirty. Um, so he's it, making the AP poll for coaches. He's making the AP poll, but you know, it's only two years. It's hard to really judge against someone that's been around for a lot longer. But in the two years, he did win the Rose Bowl and and won the Pac-12. So there's there's that. I think we'll know a lot more after this year when with no Sam Darnold. Um, but the Pac-12 has just not been as good. Uh, but there's been an you know uh, an infusion of powerful 
established coaches. So I think you'll be able to compare him against some other bigger names, and we'll see how that goes over the next couple of years. All right. I think that's going to wrap it up. That'll do it. Nice, David. Um, it's always good to talk for you for a couple of hours a week. I do. I'm really shocked, though, that we did this every week for five weeks in a row. So we have to do it one more. We have to finish. We can do one week, right? We can not screw up next week and do one. All thing. right. Well, we'll see you all in August. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to be, it's funny. I'm going to be out of town on Monday, so we can't do our regular day. So we're, it's going to be a little bit of challenge. We're going to have to like do it during the week, um, but we'll do it. So we're going to get on the horn with the, our buddies at Washington and Washington state and uh, talk to them. And then I think we'll start doing our regular spring practice updates, like, you know, what's going on from that. So that, that should be fun too. Yeah. We'll have to get a new um, series from Hitler day. Hopefully he has one ready to go. <laughs> nice. Well, I think spring practice is a good, you know, but now he's going to give us some other, now, now you challenged him. So he's going to have to come up with something new. Um, that's what I was going for. Nice. Okay. Well, that's David Woods. I am Ryan Abraham. We are the podcast of champions. We do appreciate you taking out some time of your day to listen to our little show. We do love all the feedback. So keep sending them. Tweet us at Pac-12 Podcast. Uh, we love it all. So thanks so much again. And we will talk to you next time.